Welcome to our 67th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg of Blue Frontier, and I'm here with my co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein of the Inland Ocean Coalition. And hello, everybody. It's been two years since we last spoke with our friend Jim Toomey, creator of the comic strip Sherman's Lagoon that appears in 150 newspapers in 20 countries and six languages, because that shark and his fishy mates really get around. Among his many accomplishments, awards, animations, and TED Talks, Jim also illustrated my book, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, with Finley the Fish and Claudia the Crab. Jim now has a new book out, Two Years Before the Mast. Uh, wait, that, that was Richard Henry Dana's bestseller of 1840. But it's kind of similar. It's titled Family Afloat, Two Years Sailing the World with Two Kids and Two Captains, his wife Valerie being the referred to second captain. So, Jim, before we get into your family adventures, traveling on a catamaran, sailing through Europe, the Mediterranean, and the Caribbean, while turning out your daily comic strip, let's go to your early childhood obsession with sharks. How did, how did we get to Sherman? Ah, right. Well, um, where did I first meet a shark? Um, I saw a lot of sharks on television. I, I, you know, I was a big fan of Jacques Cousteau and the underwater world and, and all uh, the National Geographic specials and all that. So I guess my first shark was a television shark. My first live shark was a family trip down to the Bahamas. And that's when I saw from the, from the air, I was flying low in an airplane. I saw sharks all over the place. And I, I actually saw an undersea landscape because the water is, as you know, is pretty clear down there. So that really opened up my eyes. I, I saw that other 70% of the planet, you know, I saw the the landscape and the animals and the, the, uh, the intricacies of it. And I began to think of it more as a another environment, another habitat for a whole other world, whole other set of animals. So how old were you? I, really, I was about 12 years old. How did you get to Sherman from that experience? Well, I always loved to draw. And I think one of the reasons I'm not a, a surgeon or a, an accountant or a lawyer and, and a, <laughs> I'm a cartoonist is because I spent a lot of time drawing in my textbooks and I never got very good grades. <laughs> but at the end of my schooling, I did have an enormous amount of output in the in the form of cartoons. And I was particularly obsessed with sharks, kind of like, you know, a typical boy might be obsessed with anything that, you know, causes damage or, or causes commotion, a dinosaur or a, a tank or a bulldozer or whatever. For me, it was sharks. And so I drew a lot of sharks. I wasn't a very good artist. So I kind of fell into cartooning because it was an easier way to draw sharks. And I, I really like telling stories and giving life to the sharks, sort of, you know, giving them human traits. I thought that was funny. So a shark was born when I was younger. It, Sherman wasn't really born until I decided to create this comic strip. And I was in my late twenties. Uh, I was living in San Francisco at the time and I needed a names for my set of characters. I went to the phone book, but I wasn't impressed with the names I saw. They were, they just seemed kind of too human, but I was impressed with the street names, the streets that they they lived on. So there was Sherman Street and Hawthorne Street and Fillmore Street. So um, these are all streets of San Francisco. Um, so that's where I got my character names. And Sherman's the shark and Fillmore. Fillmore's a sea turtle, Hawthorne's a hermit crab. The one name that I didn't get from a San Francisco map is, is Megan, Sherman's wife. And she comes from the prehistoric shark Megalodon. Oh, the big one. The big one, right. <laughs> so you were in your late 20s. What had you done until then? I mean, Not you must much. have led a life of some significance. 
<laughs> oh, you know, typical, typical American kid, you know, went to college, went to a few parties and um, kind of living the life in San Francisco. Uh, just had got, a cubicle job. Got a degree in. I got a degree in mechanical engineering. Um, and I was kind of an engineer in name. Uh, I was really just making spreadsheets and cubicles and organizing, you know, projects, but I wasn't, you know, designing bridges or anything fancy like what engineers really do. But you were, you were continuing to cartoon throughout this phase and. Right. I continued to draw and probably the world's much better off with me not designing bridges or airplanes, frankly. <laughs> so um, I think, you know, we're all better off as me as a cartoonist. So um, that, I think that really worked for everybody. At some point, I decided to to syndicate. Now, back in those days, this was the 90s, the, the way to get become successful as a cartoonist is to become syndicated in a newspaper. And, uh, and, and can you tell our listeners what a newspaper is? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, uh, How about syndicated? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Syndicate sounds evil. It sort of is. Um, yeah, this ink on dead trees conveyor of information that landed on your doorstep every morning. It is as prehistoric as it sounds. Getting syndicated was difficult. It's kind of like getting an agent when you're a writer or an actor. And uh, after a while, I self-syndicated, picked up a few newspaper accounts and sort of made it a full-time job. I eventually got picked up by a mainstream syndicate. And then, um, and then it sort of, you know, blossomed from there. I just did a series a couple of weeks ago on the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument. Hawaii. And there's actually a, yeah, I, you know, it took me a long time to, to master that word. <laughs> There's a, there's a fish that lives there called the- You mean Papa Mamanahama you're right. There's a fish that lives there called the Hamahama Nuku Nuku Apua'a, which um, from Papahanaumokuakea. And, uh, and I actually did a series on that and I kind of ran out of space and um, couldn't write a whole lot of gags about it. But it was, it was fun to kind of write a, a series of, around this fish. Short for, the short name is Hamahama. The anyway, Hama is so, also found in Maui if you want to shorten your okay. letters. <laughs> there you go. On the seafloor in the Papahanaumokuakea is, uh, is uh, sort of this geological oddity that looks like a yellow brick road. And it's, and it's real, right? And uh, if you Google it, you'll find it. So I took Sherman and his friends there and they followed the yellow brick road. And I had kind of a Wizard of Oz um, references and things like that. But, you know, that was just a couple of weeks ago. So you know, that's typical of what I do with the comic strip is I throw some teasers in there to get people Googling or to teach people a little bit. Every now and then I'll embrace an issue like shark finning or bottom trawling. And, you know, sometimes I get a little serious with it, but if you get a little too serious for too long, you kind of lose your audience. Well, you manage to be funny even when you're serious, which is a great thing. Now, my question is, in 2000, I met you and your wife, Valerie, and she was wearing a string of pearls. And I immediately realized that Valerie was Megan the shark. Sherman's wife wears a string of pearls. So my question is, which came first, your marriage or Sherman's wife? Um, Sherman's wife actually came first. We, we were married in 98 and I, I started the strip in what, 92 or something. So yeah, I did. I, I invented Megan as my, you know, ideal mate before I actually met my ideal mate. She just, she just and, put and on those pearls and there she was. Oh my gosh. And speaking of your ideal mate, you took an ideal trip. You did it and 
Many people have done it. Not many people write books about it. Family afloat, two years sailing the world with two kids and two captains. What I like, and I'm, I'm only about two thirds of the way through your book, but one thing that's exceptional is as a cartoonist and illustrator, you map, you have maps throughout showing your route and also little inserts showing where in the Mediterranean or the Caribbean or the Greek Isles you're, you're actually sailing. So we follow the story along with illustrations. Plus you have some great illustrations of your various adventures along the way and even throw in a few Sherman's Lagoon strips just to uh, periodically, I don't know, throw in some cartoon strips. Right. So self-promote. <laughs> um, it's a good way to fill a book. You know, I learned that long ago. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the places come fast and furious in, in the book. So um, a map is really the only way to keep them straight, I think, for the reader. Um, so I discovered, you know, early in the process that I needed I needed a cartographer and I I, so I learned how to draw maps. <laughs> so let's start with this adventure, Family Afloat. So you have two kids, nine and 12. You and your wife decide to take the kids out of school, go on a boat for two years and just experience the ocean. You've had a little sailing background and experience, a few mm -hmm. classes, and you went forth with the adventure. How did you convince your kids that that they would have an amazing time at that age, spending two years on a boat with their parents. Yeah, we never did. We never, we never won that fight. I mean, the, the biggest, <laughs> the biggest, um, the, the biggest argument or the biggest, I guess, barrier to entry for them was the pets. They, my, my daughter Madeline had a hamster, and and we had a family dog, and uh, so saying goodbye to the the dog for a year and probably the hamster forever was probably the most traumatic part of tearing them away from their their social fabric at home. Um, we caught them, you know, the, the, the kids' ages were really drove the timing of the trip. They were young enough to appreciate the travel and not to be a liability on the boat, but they were not so old that they, I'm sorry, they were old enough to appreciate the travel, but they were not so old that they um, were, so that tearing away from that social fabric was going to be you know, a problem. And we didn't want to be the kind of family that raised their kids for years and years on a boat. It's just, you know, I, I it's just difficult to do that. And I, I don't think it's great for the kids in the long run. So we, we really kind of hit for them. It, it was the kind of the Goldilocks moment where they were old enough, but not too old. And um, so the, the, you know, they were in the middle of changing schools, going from middle school or to elementary school to middle school and things like that. So a lot of their classmates were scattering to the wind anyway. And you planned for a year. And I guess it was a family decision. It stretched to two. It stretched to two. Yeah. Because, uh, well, one, we kind of knew in our hearts that we weren't, we were going to be go out for more than a year. We were, we hit a year about where you are now in the book, I think, David, in Greece. And, um, you know, we, we weren't going to stop then. We were thinking of coming home after about a year and a half of putting the kids back in school in the middle of the school year was problematic. Um, and coming home to the middle Eastern United States and in January was not uh, ideal either. When, when your alternative is to, you know, have a boat in the Caribbean that you knew how to sail. So it was too easy just to say yes to six more months of it. I think there's a kind of a, a little bit of an irrational fear of the ocean that I tried to ease. I, I tried to 
you know, uh, help people through my readers through. And I, I try to do that with the comic strip as well, just to bring the ocean into people's kitchen tables and living rooms with the comic strip obviously is very lighthearted. But with this, with this cruise, when we're real people on a real ocean, I try to keep it light as well, because especially nowadays with today's technology, sailing, day sailing and, and exploring on a sailboat is, is, is within the reach of a lot more people than, than it used to be. You experienced a, a frightening moment um, off of Rome in a storm. And I, I think when people think about going off in a sailboat for a couple of years, they envision, you know, way out in the middle of the ocean, huge waves. And I'm sure you had some of that, but tell us about the storm. And also how far did you normally cruise off of land? Were you, could, could you see it? Or were you just like way out surrounded by blue? So it's actually two questions, really. Sure. Sounds like you haven't read the book. He said he was going to send it to me. (laughs) Right. Yeah, Rome was a watershed moment, a watershed day in in the trip. It made us much better sailors or or gave us a a lot more confidence. Um, We kind of marked the trip by before Rome and after Rome. And if if you ask my son, what was the worst day of, of the two-year trip, his one-word answer is Rome. <laughs> you know, weather forecasting has become so sophisticated nowadays and reliable that we, when it's when it's wrong, um, sometimes <laughs> sometimes the uh, consequences can be a little serious. And uh, the we so we were running from um, northern Italy into into Rome from an island called Gianutri. And it was about a 60 mile run. We, we checked the weather and uh, there was a storm coming up from the south, but it was moving slowly. So we thought we had enough time to get into Rome. Uh, long story short, the, the storm moved north a lot more quickly than the forecast told us it would. Um, so we went smack dab into it. And um, it was a combination of shallower water, and big waves and heavy winds. And the shallower water meant that the waves were kind of shoaling over. They were starting to break. And that's that's a problem on a boat because, you know, the, the heavy up and down swells, as long as they're big enough, and that sounds counterintuitive, but a big up and down swells in the open ocean are relatively easy to deal with. In a, even in a small boat, you just kind of just kind of slalom through them. And all the energy is up and down on, on these swells. But when they start shoaling, when they start breaking and moving energy sideways, that's when boats start getting pushed around and decks start getting flooded. So when you're in when you're in a heavy sea with breaking waves, it's it's a whole different game. And when it's pitch black night, it's terrifying. Um, so that's where we found ourselves off Rome. And you were concerned enough that you brought the kids up from below decks to uh, be with you in case anything happened to the boat. Yeah, we weren't we didn't have a years and years of sailing a catamaran under our belt. And we didn't know if it would flip over because of, when a monohull gets knocked down, it, it generally gets back up because of the keel. The, the keel kind of rights it. But the catamaran has two stable positions, upright and upside down, and uh, the keels won't right it. So we brought the kids out on the bridge because we were afraid we were going to get um, knocked over. And, and when the bottom becomes the top and the top becomes the bottom, you don't want to be inside. You don't want to be clipped onto the deck or anything like that. So um, but, you know, that night gave us a lot of confidence, not only in ourselves, but our boat. We did sort of hit, get the worst that nature threw at us that night. It wasn't that bad. It was. It sounds pretty bad if you had to bring the kids up and you were worrying about 
the boat yeah. flipping and all drowning. That that sounds a little bad to me. It's well, not, again, not that bad in retrospect. <laughs> well, I think in retrospect, the worries were maybe not were somewhat unfounded. I what what we discovered by the end of the night was that that boat was not going to flip over. And that's when we really became a lot more comfortable with ourselves and the boat and even in heavy seas. So I've, I've only shipwrecked once, but you know, it's, it's the experiences you remember those kind of near, right. <laughs> near and certain, uh, but it's also interesting because you talk a lot in the book about experiences that most people don't have. You, you realize there are 8 billion humans on the planet now and on any given day, there are less than 50 million of them out on the 71% of, of the planet that's ocean, you know, which is every, every seaman and commercial sailor, every member of every Navy, every fisherman in the world. People don't have that direct experience of actually being out in the ocean. And mm -hmm. I wonder if um, your perspective was also changed by that two years in terms of you already knew a lot about the ocean from your conservation and cartooning work you feel different now yeah of course um you know i've i've been to the bottom of the ocean in in, in a dsv in alvin um i've now crossed an ocean and and i've been all you know logged maybe twenty thousand miles on a on a sailboat and you know one thing i can say is that there's plastic bags everywhere <laughs> i saw them on two miles deep i saw them in the middle of the ocean i saw them everywhere so plastic is something we really need to control now, like today. So if if I were to put one conservation issue, if one conservation issue maybe sort of went to the top of my list, it would be let's stop using plastic today because it's a genie that's getting out of the bottle more and more and more. And it's just going to be so, so difficult to clean this up. So that's kind of a bad note. Now, I when you're out in the middle of the ocean for three weeks, uh, and you see the, sort of the same seascape that people have been seeing for thousands of years. It's the same seascape that Magellan saw and Columbus saw. And, uh, it is a timeless sight. And it, it does make you just stop and just admire and, and be in awe of the planet. Because it's a, at times you feel like you're, you're not a sailor. You're, you're sort of a space explorer on a different planet. It does seem like a different planet sometimes, especially... At, at sunsets when when the when the water's reflecting you know it's dead calm and the water's reflecting the sky and you feel like you're out on a you know a polished surface and uh it it, it seems otherworldly um so there there are places on this planet that hardly anybody has seen that um can take your breath away it's just i think we're so obsessed with the object being beautiful like a beautiful mountain or you know a a, a beautiful uh stream or whatever these natural objects that are beautiful but this is beautiful nothingness it's like it's just flat beautiful um ocean and this you know the, the the clear sky and the clear ocean is is something that video cannot capture a picture cannot capture um it's you just have to take it in with all of your vision and all of your consciousness um and so it's a it's an experience i wish everybody could 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 have it's just to see the ocean like that and you, you illustrate it very nicely in some of your images of just your sacra blue, your, your catamaran floating above. You illustrate these deep submarine canyons that, you know, there's this whole world below you that's not immediately 
accessible to your site, but you know, it's there. Yeah, so, you know, I'm one. Go ahead, Vicky. Oh, Sorry. no, I was just going to say what you were talking about, how you have changed and how plastic has really risen to the top of your concern. I'm wondering, did Sherman change? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Sherman changes as I get older anyway. But yeah, I think Sherman, Sherman, I think, has become a more peaceful character. I, you know, I think we, we logged 20,000 miles on that on that boat and we didn't see I'm trying to think if we saw a shark. We saw very disappointingly little wildlife. Um, so Sherman, Sherman for me has, you know, is the face of sharks. And I've, I've come to realize that there are very few of them left. And I want to, I, I think I want to present a public image of them that's even gentler than, than I have in the past. So I've, I've kind of ditched most of the shark eats man jokes and really tried to make him a little bit more philosophical. You had a bunch of Caribbean reef sharks when you were in the Bahamas right. with your kids, I guess, making new new pets. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to show the kids sharks, you know, quote unquote real sharks. We we did see one nurse shark in the Bahamas that swam by the boat, but I don't really consider them a real shark. <laughs> no, they're 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 a real shark. I'm, I'm they're just, real. They're just very mellow. They're just <laughs> Very, very mellow. But um, I wanted to, I wanted to show the kids, you know, a shark that they may, you know, that they associate with aggression and predatory behavior. So we went on a dive, and uh, that was with dive masters and with, you know, sort of a, it was the shark dive, and we were surrounded by pretty large, you know, eight footers Caribbean reef sharks. And you know, at first they were intimidated, understandably, but. By the end of it, they were not paying attention to the giant sharks swimming around. They were looking for shark's teeth in the sand. So they they got that comfortable with, you know, 30 sharks swimming around them. So mission accomplished. One of the other experiences in that same vein was when we were in Spain along the coast, they eat a lot of octopus. And as a lot of your viewers probably know, octopuses are extremely intelligent animals. And they've got a lot. Of, they've got nine brains, as a matter of fact. Ask any Anybody who runs a commercial aquarium and they'll tell you the octopus is the most clever animal in, in, in the building, including some of the humans. We were anchored by a, a trawler that was hauling up um, octopus line, trot line, and he was kind of putting on a show for us and taking the octopus and uh, showing it, showing us the octopus. And the octopus was turning all kinds of colors, red and yellow and, and, and green and, you know, just just turning crazy colors because it was angry and the fisherman just kind of took a, a short knife and jabbed it and the Ooh. whole thing just went gray and limp oh, that's and it was like yeah it was like witnessing a you know a murder it was just you saw this just you know lively colorful animal just go limp and gray instantly and it was and then we you know your daughter we, was shocked yeah madeline was crushed um we were all we were all kind of touched by that experience because, you know, we've seen a lot of octopuses. We saw them a lot on the menus and we saw them dead in the fish markets, but we never saw one die. It does change you. Some of the wildlife, the marine wildlife encounters were, were breathtaking. We, when we were sailing from Gibraltar to the Canary Islands, I took the, the last night watch. It started at four in the morning to eight in the morning. It's a four hour watch. And as the sun was coming up, I saw a fin off 20 feet off to the the starboard side and and i thought it was a dolphin but it was a the fin didn't move like a dolphin's fin it sort of went sort of plowed straight through the water like a periscope of a submarine and as the the light 
finally kind of filled in on the ocean, I, I, I saw a sight that took my breath away. It was a, it was a whale as big as the boat and it was a fin whale and it was just swimming next to us for 20 minutes. And then it, it would go under and then it would follow us in, in the back and then it would, you know, come up next to us again. And then it would kind of go in front of us like a, like a giant dolphin. And it was an amazing, amazing experience to see. How were you able to do a daily comic strip while sailing with your family at sea for two years? Yeah, you know, the the boat and the at-sea part and the communications, all that was easy. The, the hardest part was just being in this fiberglass box with three other people all day long. That was, it's, it's difficult. And, and two miniature hamsters. Yeah, and a dog at one point as well. So, you know, we had a lot of guests and so forth. So there was always a lot of commotion on the boat. Um, so getting uh, an hour or two of just quiet time to, to draw a comic strip was was difficult, especially when you're, you know, the quote unquote captain. And when the dock master comes around, they need to talk to you. And when somebody's comes around selling, you know, bananas by your boat, they want to talk to you and the kids always get you out. So you're, you know, when there's a, a, a weird sound coming from one of the pumps and one of the, you know, cabins, it's you that have to deal with it. So it's, it is a sort of a constant job that's full of disruptions. Yeah, it was different. When, when I was talking with my daughter this morning, we were talking about the interview. She was, she, she was like, how can, how did those kids handle being with their parents in this very small space for two years? Like she's coming from her perspective. So right. um, I know that it was challenging with you being the captain and really trying to maintain your job. But how did your children handle the lack of privacy, the lack of, you know, having their own space? This is yeah. for you, Melina. <laughs> Not well in the beginning. Um, they, they did have their own cabins. So they did retreat to their cabin frequently. They, they had their homeschooling projects, which they managed to immerse themselves into um they got they got better and better at that and by the way when when covid hit and we had we we all found ourselves at home school was became a home project and jobs became a home project and the four of us were back in one space uh we didn't we didn't miss a beat i mean we all found our space even though we were in the same under the same roof because we got good at that at the in the boat we could all be in the same room but sort of in our own world and it's it's a skill that we picked up from from sailing. So it made COVID a lot easier to deal with, that's for sure. So we haven't even discussed the incredible countries and peoples you encountered, and we don't have time. So I'm gonna ask how people get hold of Family Afloat. Can they go on Amazon or yep, how Amazon would they Prime? Like? Just Family Afloat on Amazon. It's uh, or my name Toomey. I've got a few cartoon books out there as well, but just search on Amazon. That's really the only place to get it. So, um, but that's kind of where everybody gets books these days anyway. So that's right. And about 20 cartoon books and any other projects you want to mention? Not really. Um, a lot around the house here that I haven't finished, but I don't want to mention those. <laughs> well, Jim, we just really want to thank you so much for sharing your adventure, um, for being our friend, for your great comic strips. We've always loved watching Sherman or reading Sherman and hearing about him. And we're super excited about your new project. And I hope that folks will go out and get your book. And we will talk with you soon again. It was a pleasure, Vicki and so, David. It was thank you for joining us on Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, 
co-hosted by David Helbarg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbark. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true. It's the Blue Frontier Tear, tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the Blue Frontier Sparky, come here buddy! Sparky! There you are, good boy Sparky!